0: Well, good to see you this morning. I hope everybody's caffeinated and alert. Aren't we thankful for common grace and the gift of caffeine? You're laughing. I'm serious. (laughs) I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where will my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. Psalm 121. Let's pray. Thank You, Father, for the morning. Thank You for Your sentinel, guarding, keeping, preserving position in heaven. When we walk in the world, it doesn't always feel like we are safe, but we are. You're guarding, You're keeping, You're preserving. There's nothing that can remove the slightest bit of our salvation from us. There is nothing that can tarnish what you have reserved for us in heaven. We are wholly secure, and everything about our life in you is eternally safe. And so whatever happens in this world, uh, we rest in that. And we thank you. Thank you for your word that guides us, directs us, and gives us information about how to live, how to be transformed. And thank you for the very pragmatic ways in which the Spirit speaks through His Word. And as we think about the complexity of relationships as we're going to think about this morning, we thank you that there's such clear direction about how we can live in a way that relationships get reconciled and you get honored. And so would you guide us in our thinking and might might this Word be another demonstration to us of Your guarding and safekeeping of us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to Second Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. <clears throat> and I uh, want to look at this passage, Second Corinthians 7. We're going to look at two topics. Both of these are uh, full-fledged sermons or lectures, if you will. So we're going to have to go quickly this morning. Um, I want to think with you about both sides of restoration of a relationship. So what does it look like to be repentant? Uh, we would typically use the word confession of sin. I think repentance is a better word. Uh, it's a more biblical word in the full sense of it. Um, and then we want to think uh, towards the end about, about forgiveness. I'm going to spend probably the bulk of our time on repentance. That's just kind of the way it flows um, and in part because I think we haven't thought super clearly about re- what repentance is like, and so I want to focus our attention there, and then give us the remaining time to forgiveness. As we think about the Corinthian letter letters, um, let's just think about the broad context of what was going on in Corinth when Paul was writing Second Corinthians. It, it all started well. One of the one of the tr- trigger factors was in First Corinthians five. He alludes to an incestuous relationship. Uh, between a man and his stepmother, something that was so perverse that Paul said even the Gentiles uh, don't condone such kind of behavior. And the church wasn't doing anything about it. The church was, you know, letting it go by. It was common knowledge. Everybody was aware of what was going on. And it seems like they were functioning as part of the body as if there was nothing wrong in the relationship. And so Paul wrote them a letter about that situation. We don't have that letter. That letter was lost. But first Corinthians five nine, he alludes to a letter that has already been sent to them about that. Um, there was then a letter that the Corinthians wrote to the Apostle Paul um, in debate, if you will. Um, and um and then Paul wrote a letter back to them uh, about what appears to be their apathy about this that situation. So the second letter Paul wrote is a letter we do have, and that is known as 1 Corinthians. False teachers at that point, after receiving the, the second letter from Paul, false teachers were becoming more prominent in the Corinthian church, and they turned their sights on Paul, and they began attacking Paul, and diminishing his apostleship and deriding him and making accusations against him. And because of that, Paul left Ephesus where he was and he went to Corinth for what he calls in the second letter that we have, the painful visit. So he's confronting them for all of the stuff that's going on in that church. He leaves Corinth, goes back to Ephesus, and he writes a severe letter, a third letter. Uh, He alludes to that letter in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and he sends that letter to Corinth with Titus. Again, that's a letter that we don't have. So two out of the first three letters we don't have. Paul was anxious uh, for knowing how they responded to this severe letter. And so he went to Macedonia where he finds Titus. and, um, And Titus reports to him that the Corinthians have repented. And Paul is just overwhelmed with gratitude. And so he writes... A fourth letter, that letter we do have, we know that as Second Corinthians. And a, and, and a significant portion of that letter is around this theme of repentance. Now, there are other attendant issues, right? It's not like everything got fixed in Corinth immediately. There are still other issues in Second Corinthians that he deals with that were problematic within the church. But a, a major portion uh, of this letter uh, in this chapter particularly focus on this idea of of repentance and what it had produced. So 2 Corinthians 7 is where Paul particularly is addressing this issue of repentance and his joy over what God had done in the Corinthian church. Um, So as we come to this text, it's helpful to remember that all this is in the background. And as Paul is writing them, you've got this immense sin, this heinous sin that had been committed uh, between the man and his stepmother, And that has now apparently been addressed. The rebellion of the false teachers was still in the background. And Paul appears to be addressing both of those primary issues uh, as he thinks about their repentance. Repentance both for their apathy about sin that was happening in their midst and their rebellion against him and against the Lord. Um, So that's, that's the big context. There is a more... I'll call it a narrow context as we come to this passage. Let's look at verse 8. 2 Corinthians 7, 8. He says, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a little while. So that's... That's Third Corinthians, if you will. That's that third letter, the the severe letter that he's alluding to there. And and, and when he when he says what he does there in verse eight, it's just an acknowledgement that when we have to deal with issues of sin, it's sorrowful, right? So whether you're dealing with with um, a sin issue with you know one of the two foot three foot disciples in your home, um, or whether you're dealing with it with a brother that's engaged in some kind of gross sin, it's just hard and and. And, and part of you is saying, I don't want to do this. It's, it's difficult and it's severe and, and it makes me sad to even deal with it. That's what Paul's talking about in verse 8. At the same time, we recognize that repentance produces eternal reward. So he says, I, I was sorrowful only for a little while, but now, verse 9, I rejoice. Not that you were made sorrowful. So my delight is not in your sorrow per se, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. So my goal wasn't to make you sad. My goal was to make you sad over your sins so that you would repent. And that's where my joy is, he says, for you were made sorrowful according to the will of God so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. And and when he says that, he's recognizing that when they repent, there's something eternal that accrues to their benefit, right? So it's It's eternal value when a sinner repents. And and that's just a consistent theme throughout the Scriptures. We see that in in broad relief in uh, the story of the prodigal son, right? There's another point I want you to notice as we head into this text, and that is that repentance avoids eternal death. That's verse 10. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret. So there's a worldly sorrow that that produces a repentance, but it's not a genuine repentance. It's the repentance that says, I really regret that I have to go through this process, right? And they they really don't want what repentance actually produces. But the will of God produces a different kind of repentance, and it, notice the end of verse 10, leads to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So when you're genuinely repentant, you avoid death. Uh, That's a good trade, right? A little humility to avoid death, that's a good trade. And so what, what we need to notice here is that when someone repents, it either produces salvation or it indicates that salvation is already in them. And both of those are good things. So let's think now about what Paul says. I want to draw our attention. We're going to spend the bulk of our time now in verse 11 where Paul identifies what this repentance looked like in the Corinthian church. When they repented... Uh, what did, what did that look like? And this is, this is the kind of thing. I cannot tell you how many times I have taught this and just the way we're going to talk about it today in my counseling office. I get out my whiteboard and I start drawing and writing and I've gone over this over and over and over and over. This, this is the heart of repentance and this is what, this is what repentance ought to look like in some form in any kind of sin situation when there's been an impediment between two people. Um, this is, this is what repentance Um, looks like. Notice the first thing that the apostle Paul says is that there is an earnestness to it. And I think that's kind of the covering word. That's the big word. Um, That's the summary word. Verse 11, behold what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. There's an eagerness to do what is right. There's a seriousness about the task. Um, My phone is talking to me. And it shouldn't be. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, there's an earnestness to it, a, a, a yearning, a longing. And, and those words are going to come up again. There's an eagerness. There's a seriousness to it. So think about the Corinthians originally, right? When that sin first popped up uh, with the, this incestuous relationship, there's apathy about it. And, and that apathy is now replaced by this eagerness, this earnestness to address their sin. What did it look like? Seven Marks of godly repentance. Number one, godly confession begins with a longing to confess sin. Behold what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. And now he's going to identify seven marks of their repentance. What vindication of yourselves. Vindication means they are defending their new position in Christ. They're saying about their sin, yes, that is what I did, but I confessed, and now I'm living a different kind of way. They have a, a yearning to, to acknowledge their sin, to confess their sin, to identify their sin in all of its fullness, and to be rid of the guilt be, before both God and man. And isn't it true that when, when, when we sin, the tendency of the flesh is to say, oh, I don't want to confess that. If I if I confess that if I acknowledge what's going on, then what will people think of me? Right? What's the cost going to be? And and at at this point in the Corinthian church, they said we don't care. We're going to put ourselves in full display about what we what we were and what we did, and have full acknowledgement of it. Um, the one who is really repentant is willing to confess sin and does confess his sin. One pastor has said, we are managing our sin rather than repenting of our sin. And he is absolutely right. So as we talk about repentance and confession, acknowledgement of sin, what, what, what do we mean by that? A vindication of my sin means that I clearly identify the specific sins to those against whom I've sinned. So instead of just saying, well, I sinned, Genuine biblical repentance says, I've sinned in these ways and we specify the particular ways in which we have sinned in that particular circumstance against that particular person and then acknowledge, I am guilty, even as David says, before God and you. There's no excusing of it. There's no waffling on it. Um, but just a full, clear explanation of what we 've done, we have a great example of that in Luke chapter fifteen in the story of the prodigal son, right so uh, verses eighteen and nineteen he came to his senses and he says, "'I will get up and I will go to my father, and I will say to him, Father." I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. So he's specific; it's it's against God and against you. Now I think this is the abbreviated version. Jesus didn't give the full confession that the that the son would have made, but I think it's easy to to see in the text that at this point he's identifying, Dad, I shouldn't have done this, I shouldn't have done this, I shouldn't have done this, and all these things were a sin against you. So it's acknowledgement of his sin against. God and his guilt before God, it's an acknowledgement of his sin against his father. Notice he says, I have sinned in your sight. Well, what is it that he did in his father's sight? They both know, right? And he's acknowledging in that moment, this is exactly what I have done. He also acknowledges his worthiness only to receive judgment. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. I, I have a right only now to judgment and condemnation from God. Um, and then there is a plea for mercy and forgiveness. So he says, Make me as one of your hired men. And so we see in, in short form uh, with the prodigal son a really clear explanation of what biblical confession looks like. unfortunately, most confessions are evasive. They minimize our faults. They minimize the weight of our guilt. They minimize how our sins have cost others. They make excuses. Well, if this hadn't happened, and if that hadn't happened, and if I hadn't been in this circumstance, I don't know. Genuine confession accepts culpability I think sometimes you can say, hey, there was this factor and that didn't help me, but I was wrong regardless. Um, so let's think about it in these terms. Um, think about a couple that has conflict about finances. I, I can't imagine that any couple ever argues about finances or has difficulty, but let's pretend that somebody, a husband and wife, are in conflict about finances. There's been an overdraft. And they get the dreaded letter, this very thin letter that comes from the bank that's one page. And you go, oh, no. And you know, it's an overdraft, right? And the husband pops a gasket, which means he's unrighteously angry. And he starts ranting and raving because the check that put him over, she wrote. And it's her fault. Right? If you hadn't been spending all that money at Kroger and buying all those groceries, then we wouldn't you're buying all this stuff that we don't need, right? And on and on. He just he just launches. And what he hadn't been doing is hadn't been telling her that he's been spending money on stuff for the garage, right, for his shop. And truth be told, he hadn't balanced a checkbook in two months. And he really didn't have any idea what was in there. And so, yeah, it was her check that put it over, but it's his problem because he's the one that hasn't been getting me oversight. So what what does confession look like in that circumstance? He goes to her and says something like, I was wrong. I was wrong to speak to you in the way you did, in the way I did. Um, You are a person made in the image of Christ and an image bearer of Christ and God and I always should speak to you with respect appropriate to that position beyond that you are even my beloved and how is it that someone who is beloved can speak to you in such a way Um, beyond that my anger was wrong it was inappropriate to be angry because um, maybe we could have saved a little bit of money at Kroger but that wasn't the issue The issue was that I've been spending money on tools and I've spent $300 last month on tools for the garage that we really didn't need and I didn't tell you about it. And by the way, I haven't been giving good leadership to our finances either and that was wrong. I've put our family in a precarious position because of my care of finances and honestly, it's because of my laziness. It's not just that I didn't do it. I'm lazy. I'm afraid. I'm afraid of what the bank is going to say. I'm afraid of what you're going to say when you see my expenditures. And so I've put it off and haven't done it. And the laziness is really a manifestation of my fear. Um, I've been sinning in every way. I've sinned against God. I haven't followed my biblical mandate as a godly husband and leader in the home. I've sinned against you. I've sinned with our finances. Will you forgive me? So in that confession, what he has done is he's acknowledged the popping of the gasket, so to speak, right? He's acknowledged his anger. He's acknowledged what he did. He's acknowledged his motive, right? So it's not, just, it's not just that he's not balancing the checkbook. It's not just that he's wasting money. He's lazy and fearful. And those are really issues that now he can address because it's not a matter of just getting him financial counseling. It's really a matter of addressing his laziness and fearfulness. Those are, the, those are the underlying issues that a counselor is going to want to help him with or his wife in that particular instance. That's vindication. It's on the table. I'm not proud. But I want you to see everything about my, about my sin. So godly confession begins with a longing to confess sin. Godly confession also includes anger about the results of sin. Notice what Paul says in the text. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation. Indignation is a, another word for angry. And he's not saying they're angry against Paul. They've been angry against Paul, but that's not what he's talking about here. The indignation now is turned from being against him to against their sin. They're indignant about their sin, they're angry about the sin. Um, angry about the sin rather than the, sin, the sins of themselves rather than the sins of others against them they 're more concerned about their sins than the sins of others it 's easy to get angry about sins out there, right um, it 's hard to get angry about sins in here, and that 's where they made that transition now they 're angry about their own personal sin they 're angry about what their sin has caused rather than being caught in their sin. Um, they were indignant, angry, because of the scandal that they had created in Corinth by their repeated sins. Can you imagine the testimony of this church? Hey, what are you doing on Sunday morning? Oh, I'm going to church. Where do you go to church? Oh, we go to the Corinthian church. Whoa! You go there? I mean, that, that's the reputation that they had in town. It's like, do you know what they do in that church? It's this really weird cultish thing, right? That's, that's the reputation that they had. And they're indignant about it. They're angry about it. The repentant person hates his sin and he hates what his sin has done to him. Now let me just say, until you get to the place where you hate your sin, you're never going to be repentant. Instead, you will coddle your sin. You will excuse your sin. You will manipulate circumstances to hide your sin. In order to be repentant, you've got to hate your sin. And that's where the Corinthians, in God's grace, had finally arrived. Confession and repentance are genuine when there is anger over sin that I have committed and when there is not anger about anything else. It's not about you, it's about me. It's not about your actions, it's about my heart. Uh, And that is a really safe place to be. There is a place for anger in the believer. Most of the time when you see anger, it's misplaced anger, it's ungodly anger, it's unrighteous anger. There is a place for anger, but the place for anger is when it's directed against our own sins and how we have harmed others. Thirdly, godly confession contains a righteous fear of God. Um, What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear. Now when he says fear, he could be talking about a fear of God or a fear of man. And both of them are alluded to in the context of this passage. So in verse 1, he says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And so he's very explicit in verse 1 um, that there is an appropriate fear of God. And so certainly he could be borrowing from that in verse 11. Verse 5 He's talking about fear of man or an inward fear that is not directed so much at God but maybe at circumstances or other things. When we came into Macedonia, he says in verse 5, our flesh had no rest but we were afflicted on every side conflicts without fears within. So the conflicts in the body, fearfulness within. And that seems to be alluding to not fear of God but fear of man. And again in verse 15 in a similar way he says, his affection abounds all the more towards you Speaking about Titus, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. There, that's not an ungodly fear, but it is a fear that's directed towards man. They're an appropriate kind of fear of man, if you will. And so what's he talking about in verse in verse 11? I think, though it could be either, and contextually it could be either, I think what he's talking about there is a fear of God. Now think about the Corinthians. And think about the the, the fullness of their sin. Think about the extent of their sin. Think about all the manifestations of their sin and the implications that come from their sin. What would you be fearful of? If I don't repent, what will happen to me? Hell. Um, Wrath, judgment, condemnation. If we stay in our sin, we will die in it. And the end of our soul is in question by our lack of repentance. And I think that is exactly what they're talking about here. The one who confesses his sin acknowledges that the first one he must deal with is not the individual across the table from him, but God in heaven. That's where the prodigal began. That's where David began. Uh, David says, Psalm 51, Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, he says to the Lord. David who was a lying, manipulating, murderer, murdering adulterer, says his only sin is against God. Now, it's not his only sin, is it? But in comparison, uh, making a comparison between a sin against God and a sin against people, the only thing that's really weighty is a sin against God. So that's where he starts. So a, a righteous confession, a righteous repentance looks towards what we have done against God and cultivates a godly fear, understands the weight of our guilt before the Lord and what that might mean for us long term. Godly confession also longs to restore relationships. Notice Paul says, what longing, uh, what kind of longing? What is it that they were wanting? What is it that they were longing for? Well, he uses the same word in verse 7. Um, but God who comforts the depressed comforted us by the coming of Titus now verse 7 and not only by his coming but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you as he reported to us your longing your mourning and your zeal for me they had a longing for Paul they had a longing for the restoration of the relationship right the relationships broken And they wanted Paul back. We see what our sin has done. And we see how we have pushed you away. And we want restoration. And we want reconciliation. And we want fellowship again. And if you're married, you know what that's like, right? Something intrudes in your relationship between between you and your wife. And her, her back may be turned against you, either literally or figuratively. And you recognize this this wall has arisen between the two of you. And what do you want? I want her. I want the restoration of our fellowship. I want delight. I want to see that beautiful smile um, not looking away from me, but looking towards me and favor towards me. And I, I want the delight of that communion again. Now you think about the Corinthian church, right? And think about everything that had gone on and the corinthians could be tempted to say something like this you know paul we we really regret what we did and they lay out their sin in a biblical manner and they they repent of their sin and they they seek his forgiveness and and then they could say something like this you know paul thank you for your forgiveness but you know there's been so much that's happened between you and us can we have a different apostle i mean could could we have could we have john i mean john's the apostle of love right can, can we just have john instead of you i mean no offense but but you know we just It'd be better for all parties concerned to just make a transition. Let's find a different apostle. No, no, no. Paul, we want you. We want to be restored to you. It's you we want. We have to have you. In confession, full repentance says, through this, rela- through this confession and through this repentance, I don't want just the transaction. I want the fellowship that arises from that. And you're going to know when somebody's really repentant when they have a longing to continue in communion on the other side. Maybe you've had someone say to you something like this. There was many years ago um, a personal conflict between me and another person and I I tried to make it right on multiple occasions. The third time I went to this individual and said um, this is what this is what I did. Will you forgive? He said, I've told you three times now. I forgive you. Yes, I forgive you. But if you think I'm going to have the same relationship with you ever again, you're sorely mistaken. Uh, oops. <laughs> that's, that's not what this is. And um, full confession, full repentance, longs to have the relationship restored. Godly confession is also dedicated to holiness. Notice he also says, what zeal you had. Zeal is a desire to do what is right. In their confession, the Corinthians wanted to do the right thing. They wanted their sinful actions to be replaced by righteous actions to do the right kind of thing. They were, they were zealous. They were aggressive for righteousness, zealous to pursue righteousness. The, right, the repentant person is not just the person who hates his sin, but the hatred for the sin is conjoined to a righteous delight in doing the right thing. Right? They, they, they now hate the sin and they love the corresponding acts of righteousness. They want to do what is righteous and passionate before the Lord. Um, we, we tend to minimize the gospel in our day and so many listen, we're in Granbury, Texas, outside the, outside the DFW area. We are in the buckle of the Bible Belt. And unfortunately, in this buckle, one of the dominant ideas floating around is there's this idea of repentance that says, I can just change my mind about what I've done, change my mind towards God, and that's enough. No, no, no. It's a change of mind that produces a change of life. Repentance is not just changing my mind and changing my thinking about what has been done, but changing my living and changing what I'm doing. There's an overflow between change of mind and life. So John says to the Pharisees, "Um, you brood of vipers, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Do something about this repentance that you say you have. You don't, you don't prove your repentance by saying words. I mean, it starts with words, but it's proven by a changed life. And that's what the Corinthians were, were engaged in. Now, they've changed. Now they're zealous for doing the right kind of thing. So repentance and confession moves beyond just the words to a changed life. How do you know? That the person is repentant. I can't, I can't, I, I don't know how many times I've said over the years, you're going to know when person X is repentant. How am I going to know, Pastor? You'll see the change in life. It'll just be obvious. You're not going to have to worry about sorting out, you know, well, is this the right word? Did he say the th- right thing? No, no, no. It's just, it's going to overflow into a pursuit of righteousness. It'll be clear that he's repentant because his life has changed part of the way that he's changed is that the godly confession and repentance makes willing restitution. Notice towards the end now of verse 11, what avenging of wrong. Avenging of wrong has the idea of punishing what is wrong. Here it has the idea of seeing what needs to be done to make things right and then doing them. It's it's this idea of restoration. We understand that when we sin against someone, it costs them. It puts us in a debt, right? We talk about the debt of sin, the debt of sin against God and the debt of sin against others. Um, Sometimes sometimes it's easy to quantify, right? So uh, I might leave a book laying out. You might pick up the book and walk off with it, even though my name is stamped on it in two places, and I've highlighted and written it, in, you know, and it's clear it's my book. You pick it up and take it away as yours. What does repentance look like? Oh, and then you put it on top of your car and as you drive off, it goes flying off into the breeze and then it rains and the book is ruined. How do you fix that? What's restitution? Hey, pastor, uh, friend, I took your book and um, and I shouldn't have took it, taken it. Here's why I took it, you know, the full confession. And here's what I'm going to do to restore and make it right. Here's $20 to buy another book just like it what does that restore yes then no I've, I've read that book I've got all my marking in it I've got all my highlighting I've got all my notes and those are gone how do you restore that you can't and that's honestly that's the way it is for a lot of our sin now, when we're angry at another person, it doesn't cost them anything financially. Now, if the anger overflows into physical violence, it may cost them you know, the trip to the hospital and we make restitution with that. But a lot of those angry words, hostile words, demeaning words, condescension, manipulation, scheming, how do you pay that stuff back? Willing restitution avenging of wrong acknowledges the debt of that part of the acknowledgement is to say I know I've cost you something I can't pay back but here's what I'm going to do in the future and, and and part of the restitution at that point becomes a transformed life where once you were angry now you're gracious where once you were hostile now you're benevolent uh, where once you were hating now you're loving uh, where once you were unkind with your words, now you're gracious with your words. And and friends, that can only be repaid over time. Don't say, well, this is my plan. I think part of restitution is saying, I've got a plan, here's my plan to start living a transformed life so that I don't ever cost you that again. Um, but that's going to take time to demonstrate. Um, but that's, that's exactly what the Corinthians did. Um, they paid back. And then notice this. This is my favorite part of this verse. I can hardly read it. I've read it, I don't know, dozens and dozens of times. In everything. You demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. Were the Corinthians innocent? This is the part where you're allowed to talk to me. No! <laughs> they were not They were filled with guilt. How can Paul say that? Because from the time of repentance forward, they had developed a track record of innocence. He's talking about transformation, he's talking about genuine change. That word innocent actually means pure, immaculate, without guilt, undefiled. And notice that he says, in everything, means it's been tested. Right, So there, there's been occasion to see what are the Corinthians going to do? How are they going to act? How are they going to respond? And he says, in every circumstance, as I've looked back and heard report of you, you've demonstrated repeatedly over and over and over and over that what you were in the past is not what you are now. And friends, this is where you can really help your counseling. This is hopeful. You can change You don't have to carry the guilt of your sin forward. It can be removed, transformed, changed, so that you can be viewed not only by God with Christ's righteousness, but you can be viewed by those whom you have sinned against as innocent. There's hope for transformation for you and in you. And brothers and sisters, this is where regret disappears. Regret doesn't disappear by by anything other than going through the process of genuine repentance and giving up our sin and acknowledging our sin and then being transformed by the renewing of our minds and doing what God calls us to do in genuine righteousness. So, let me summarize. What does godly repentance look like and what does godly confession look like? It begins with a yearning to confess sin. All the sin, the full extent of sin, it includes anger over the result of our sin that has caused others. It contains a righteous fear of God we 're fearful of our lack of confession and what that might mean eternally. Confession uh, to re- the, uh, longs to restore relationships we don 't want to just be absolved of our guilt, but we want full restoration of the fellowship with God and each other it 's dedicated to holiness, we want to change, it makes willing restitution. And it produces purity in subsequent activities. We might not have been pure in the past, but we can be pure in the present and the future. And that's tremendously hopeful. Let me just turn it around. What does worldly repentance look like? What's the opposite? Because he has that in mind. He's talked about worldly repentance or worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. What does worldly repentance, quote unquote, look like? The one who is worldly repentant is, is reluctant or resistant to confess sin. He defends his actions. He makes excuses for his sin rather than confessing his sin. He makes rationalizations. He makes accusations against others. Well, I wouldn't have done that if you hadn't. Fill in the blank. You've heard that. He's angry with those who confront rather than angry over his sin. One man told me one time who had been involved in a, in serial adultery, um, and I came to him, I think we were about to enter stage three, step three of the discipline process with the church, and he says, your confrontation doesn't comfort me. In, in other words, I need you to comfort me and appease me. I said, it's not my job. You need repentance, brother. Uh, and, you know, he's, he was angry with me. Um, rather than being angry over his sin. That's not uncommon. He fears loss of position or possessions or reputation and does not fear God's wrath. He's apathetic about the destruction of the relationships that were caused by his sin. So, you know, there, there's, this, there's this train wreck of relationships all around this person. He's apathetic. I don't care. doesn't matter to me about what's happened. He has no interest in holiness like Demas. He's attracted to the world. Um, he's unwilling and uncaring about the consequences of sin, and does not seek to make restitution. And his subsequent life is impure and ungodly. That's a picture of unrepentance. And when you see that, you go, "Not repentant." Doesn't matter what's coming out of the mouth. That's unrepentance. And that that just makes it really easy to evaluate, doesn't it? Is this person repentant or not repentant? Well, fill out the chart. Where are they? And then you then you're going to know. Okay, so let's let's say, like the Corinthians, um, the Corinthians come and they make confession and they um, are acknowledging their repentance and they come to you and ask for forgiveness. What do you do? Luke 17. <clears throat> and let's talk about biblical forgiveness. And we're going to think about biblical forgiveness in two facets. We're going to think about transacted forgiveness. So someone comes, confesses, repents they ask for forgiveness and then you transact that with them and you grant them forgiveness and then we're going to talk secondarily about internal heart forgiveness as we think about biblical forgiveness let's note first what forgiveness is not forgiveness is not a feeling are you in Luke 17 did I tell you to turn there Luke 17 look at verse 3 be on your guard if your brother sins rebuke him and if he repents forgive him um This is, this is Luke's paraphrase of Luke, uh, Matthew 18, right? The full process of church discipline. This is it in summary form. If your brother sins, go to your brother, rebuke him, and if he repents, when he repents, then forgive him. Notice that forgiveness is not a feeling. It is an action that directs our feelings. So we direct and command our hearts to change so that we can forgive with integrity. So we say, yes, I forgive you. And I forgive, and we'll talk about this in a moment, from the heart. But that, he's not talking here about a feeling. He's talking about something that is verbalized. So if he comes and he repents then you speak to him and you forgive him. That's a transaction. That's a conversation, right? That's an interaction between two people. It's not a feeling. And notice that it must be done whenever the sinner repents. Whenever they repent, it is non-optional. You must forgive. Whenever the sinner repents... You forgive. Now notice with that though that there also is a conditional factor to it so that he must repent. And people are really hesitant to say, Oh, forgiveness, I don't want to make it conditional. No, it's conditional. God's forgiveness of us is conditional. Does God forgive people without confession? No. Do people get to heaven without repenting of their sin? It's okay. You can say it. No. If you want to get to heaven, if you want fellowship with Christ, you've got to let go of your sin. That's that's the only way. If you want fellowship with Christ as a believer, you've got to let go of your sin. How can I say that? 1 John one nine. Anybody know that? If you confess your sins... He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If, then. There's no then until the if. And there He's talking about um and we don't have time to go through that passage but there he's talking about communal fellowship so that's confession for the believer he's not talking about confession for salvation he's talking about confession that produces fellowship within the context of a relationship that's already been established but there is conditional conditional uh, forgiveness with god right and so it is with us as well now just i I know you've I've just raised probably 14 questions just hold them and I hope hope we'll get to that I, I want you to see here particularly that what Christ is advocating for is that we don't go to someone and say I forgive you when they haven't confessed now that doesn't give me liberty to hold it against them internally I'll talk about that in a minute But if I want to transact something for them, right? So somebody murders my my daughter, I don't go to the jail and say, I forgive you. Now, if he comes and repents and gives manifestation of repentance, then absolutely I transact that with him as hard as that would be. But I don't transact that I don't grant it to him until he repents. Part of the problem with that is, if I don't, if I, if I grant him forgiveness without repentance, then I'm, then I'm attempting to absolve sin without repentance for sin, and I've not helped him. He's not dealing with the condition of his heart and his sin, and, and, and granting that forgiveness is no favor to him, even though it seems to be a favor. So Jesus says, if he confess, if he repents, then forgive him. Notice this as well from verse four: Forgiveness is to be granted repeatedly, and if he sins against you seven times a day, and returns to you seven times saying, "I repent," forgive him. That's hard, yeah. That's why it's not a matter of feeling; it's about, and we'll talk about this in a moment. It's a matter of faith and believing that what God says is the right thing to do. Um, so we do it. As often as someone sins against us there's no limit to the extent of forgiveness to those that we offer who sin against us and we affirm in that forgiveness we're not keeping a record and not continuing to hold on to it so that we can recall it later and aren't you glad that the lord does that with us Anytime you go to him I cannot tell you how many times I've confessed the sin of gluttony hundreds of times And the Lord has never said to me, not this time, Terry, you're up to 742, that's it, I'm cutting you off. Isn't that a grace? And that's the way, because we belong to the Savior, that's the way we respond to one another as well. Verse 5, verse 6, Forgiveness is a matter of faith, not feelings. The apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. Who can do this? Right? And the Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. It's a matter of faith. Believing that what God has said is the right thing to do. And it will be for your benefit and for His glory when you do that so you believe that it's not a matter of feeling the right way it's a matter of believing that what God has said is the right thing to do and further is it a matter of obedience not feelings verses 7 to 10 which of you having a slave plowing or tending the sheep will say to him when he's come in from the field oh come in immediately and sit down and eat no but will he not say to him prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink and then afterward you may eat and drink he doesn't thank the slave because he did the things which are commanded does he I mean, the slave is the slave. He's just doing what he's supposed to do when he's out in the field, working in the field, and then he comes in and he serves his master. That's just, that's the job description. There's nothing particularly commendable about that. He's just been faithful to do it. So you too. When you do all the things which are commanded you, what things? When they repent, forgive. You say, we're unworthy slaves. We've only done that which we ought to have done it's a matter of obedience not a matter of feelings and when we're forgiving we're doing something both remarkable and unremarkable remarkable in that who can forgive the kinds of things that we have to forgive and it's unremarkable because we're simply doing what we ought to be doing as slaves of the master jesus christ let me notice this note this as well another thing that forgiveness is not forgiveness is not forgetting You hear that all the time, right? Forgive and forget. I don't know about you, but in my life, there have been some momentous sins. I mean Mount Everest sins. Both things that I have done and things that have been done against me. Anybody else in that category, or am I alone? Anybody been able to forget that? No, you raised your hands. You remember, right? In fact, in Scripture, there is no command to forget sins. The nature of some sins is you're just not going to be able to forget it. The pain of it may diminish over time. um, But a lot of it, you're just not going to forget. Some of your sins are going to have such consequences That you can't forget because you live with the consequences every single day of your life. That there are physical implications. Um, Sometimes there are legal implications for what you've done. You're not going to forget. Brother and sister, I don't know about you, but also some of the sins I've committed, I don't want to forget. I don't want to forget the pain of what I inflicted on others. And I don't want to forget the grief that it caused me in repentance. I don't want to forget that sin because I don't want to forget what it cost me. That's good. That, that keeps me saying, huh, that, I, that looks like an enticing road down there. I don't want to go down that road. That was a painful road and I don't want to go down that road again. Notice this as well. God does not pr- promise to forget our sins. God's omniscient. Can He forget It's okay, you can answer back. Can God forget? No. He's omniscient. He knows everything. He knows all possibilities about everything. He knows everything from the past. He knows everything about the future. He knows everything that was possible in the past and everything that is possible in the future. He can't forget. So what does He do with our sins? And I've given you a number of texts there that that refer to these things. The text says He puts it behind His back. You know, so play the game with a little child, right? Right? You know, peekaboo, you put up the towel. Where's daddy? I don't, Where did daddy go? They can't see, so they don't know it's there. And that's the picture. It's behind my back. I'm not looking at it. I've cast it to the depths of the sea. What does that mean? I've put it in the place that is remote from me. It's not front and center in front of me. I'm not looking at it and giving attention to it. I've cast it as far as the east is from the west, places where it will never meet. Again, it's, it's removed from my presence. He knows it's there, but he's not giving attention to it. He's not focusing on it. He's not dwelling on it. That's the key to remember. When we forgive sin, we're saying, I'm not going to dwell on it anymore. I know it's there. But it's not at the forefront of my mind. In fact, not only is forgiveness not forgetting, there are examples in Scripture of intentional remembering of sin. This is one of my favorite verses Ephesians chapter 2. And you're familiar with Ephesians 2. Ephesians 1 to 3, there's one command. Ephesians 4 to 6, there are 41 commands. So Ephesians 1 to 3, he's giving the indicatives, our position in Christ and what we are, verses chapters 4 to 6, he's talking about the implications of our position in Christ, what we ought to do before before we're in Christ, or because we're in Christ, excuse me. The one imperative in chapters 1 to 3 is in 2.11. Therefore, remember, that's the imperative. Um, so even, even the verb itself, remember, is something of a mind renewal thing, right? It's our, it, it's, it's something that we're to give attention to, not something that we would typically say, well, that's what we do. Um, so therefore, remember, what are they to remember? That formerly, What's that? That's the past. And you're looking back with intentionality and focusing on what happened in the past and intentionally not forgetting it. Therefore, remember that formerly, what should they remember? The Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision. By the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that at that time, I want you to intentionally remember that you were separate from Christ. Why were they separate from Christ? Their sin. He's saying, I want you to remember back to what you were and the implications of your sin. And you can't think about the implications of your sin without thinking about the sin. Remember that you were um, separate from Christ, you were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. I want you to remember everything about your past and all of the implications of that and all the trouble that it caused you. Why? So that verse 13 makes sense. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Listen, your gratitude for Christ's salvation won't make sense until you remember the horridness of your sin and what that had cost you and the implications of it. So when we say forgive, we're not talking about forget. And we are saying don't dwell on it. But we aren't saying forget. You're not going to be able to forget some of it. In God's grace, you will forget some things. they will just pass from your memory. And that's a, that's a grace. But there are many things that you will not. But we can, from Ephesians, say, let's turn those and let's think about what God has worked in me in spite of the sin and through the sin. Forgiveness as well is not excusing. Forgiveness is not saying, when I come to you and say, will you forgive me? Oh, that's okay. No, no, no. It's not okay. It cost you. It was rebellion. It was hatred. It was anger, whatever it was. It was a genuine sin. It was guilt. I was culpable. That's not okay. So don't say, oh, it's okay. I know you didn't mean it. No, I did mean it. That's the point, right? Right? Jesus says, Luke uh, Luke 6.45, Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. I did what I did because it was in my heart. I did mean it. Uh, it, I I am culpable. When we excuse things, we minimize the significance of the sin and we don't take it as serious. Don't, Don't just blow it off. Further, it's dishonest. It calls something sin other than what God calls it. God calls it sin. Now, what you can do, and I've had brothers do this to me, and I've had brothers, and I've said this to brothers as well. Somebody in the last couple of weeks came to me, and I can't even remember what the issue was. They said, "Will you forgive me for it?" And it's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I, I, I promise you, I didn't give it a second thought. I took no offense. it, 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 it was not a sin that I perceived as being directed against me. So. I want you to be alleviated of any sense of guilt that you harm me because there was no harm. Um, but if you're asking me for forgiveness, absolutely I forgive you. I delight to forgive you. And it's wiped away. Um, and, and we want to do that, right? So you can be honest and say, no, I, t- I took no harm from it. But then make sure that you... Grant forgiveness if they have asked for it. Forgiveness is also not letting time heal the the offense. Time doesn't heal anything. However, faithfulness over time does heal. And that's what you saw in the Corinthians, right? So in everything, you proved yourselves innocent in the matter. How can you say that? Because time and faithfulness demonstrated repentance. So time isn't going to heal anything. So what is Forgiveness. Forgiveness is a decision. It's something that is verbalized. Again, notice our text. Be under your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. It's a verbalized response to his confession. It's an action that is intentionally taken. Um, it is an intentional granting of forgiveness. So it's a transaction. You give me your sin. And in return, I give to you forgiveness. Right, so we say we transact that, and that's that's a verbalized, that's a conversation. It's not something that just well, I start treating you nicely, and so we're just going to assume that it's taken care of. Um, you've probably had relationships like that too, where it's like, well, this person is really angry and hostile, and then over time they just start treating you nicely, and you just kind of you know are supposed to ignore what happened in the past. No, 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 we're being intentional to talk about the issue of sin that arose between us and then we transact. We have this conversation. You ask and I grant. Uh, That's the transaction of forgiveness. Along with that, um, I'm making a promise. When I forgive you, I'm making a promise like God does that I'm not going to dwell on it. Right? I'm not going to dwell on the incident mentally. I'm not going to keep rehearsing it in my mind over and over. Anybody ever, um, guys, you ever been shaving in the morning and thinking about the guy that you're going to see at work that day and what he did to you yesterday and you just kind of keep rehearsing that in your mind over and over and over? Anybody ever do that? Yeah, yeah, okay. So there's like me and two others that are being honest, right? (laughs) So, yeah, we play those things over our minds. When I grant forgiveness, here's what I'm doing. I'm saying I'm not going to play that game. Now, you're going to be tempted to do it, and what do you do in that moment? What you say is, no, self. You take yourself in hand, as Lloyd-Jones says, you take yourself in hand, and you say, no, self. I granted forgiveness for that sin. I no longer have a right to hold that against him. The only thing I have a right to do is pray a blessing for him. So, here we go. Lord, would you, and now I pray a blessing for that person. I bless and don't curse, as Paul says in Romans chapter 12. So, I don't dwell on the incident mentally. It's a promise as well not to bring up the sin again and use it against the other person. That last phrase is important. I bring it up, I I don't bring it up again as an attack against the person. Well, you always, this is just like when. No, 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 that's off the table. Now, in a husband and wife relationship, what is on the table is to say, The husband goes to his wife and says, you know, I've done this repeatedly. I keep falling into this hole. Just like two days ago, I was in this hole again. Can you help me devise an action plan where I can start to change because I've got to get a hold on this? That's fair. That's even appropriate for a wife to come to her husband and initiate that conversation. She's not holding it against him. She's helping him with it. So you can talk about what happened but not use it against the other individual, right? It's a promise as well not to talk to others about the sin. Uh, Nick Allen has a lecture that he gives when A talks to B about C. That's a great title. Um, and that's what we're talking about here, right? So it's appropriate to go to a counselor and say, how can, I, how, can, how can you help me think this through so that I can respond in a biblical way? But I don't go to, somebody, to my buddy and say, hey, you won't believe my, my, what my wife did. No, no, no. That's off the table. It's been forgiven. I don't have a right to talk to anybody else. And it's a promise not to let the incident hinder your relationship with a sinner. Maybe a better way to say that is it's a promise to rebuild the relationship so that it even surpasses what it was previously. So it's it's that longing aspect, right? I want you. I want you back. You put all these things together and it's a recognition that forgiveness is an act of the will. It's not emotions. Um, It's not optional, brothers and sisters. We are obligated to forgive. Let me give you a summary statement here. Forgiveness is a lifting of the charge of guilt against another. It is a formal declaration of that fact and a promise made and kept never to remember the wrong against him in the future. We trained our children from the very earliest ages. Um, We never apologize for anything. Apology is a a defense, and that's what the Greek word means. It's a defense. And I don't want to make an apology and defend myself. I have no defense. I'm guilty. I'm wrong. So we always have used the terms right from even before they were able to understand confession and forgiveness. So we repent and we forgive. And um, I come to you in confession. I come to you in brokenness. Will you forgive me? And we, we use those words all the time. Will you forgive me? Yes, I forgive you. And now you've just driven a state into the ground that we have made this transaction. Forgiveness is a giving up a right to revenge, right? I've let it go. It's not at the forefront anymore. It releases the offender from our, gra- our grasp and it clears the record in our heart. Um, Matthew 18 35, forgiveness isn't just a transaction, it's got to happen inwardly, right? It's not just words. I've got to believe it. I've got to want it. I've got I've to affirm internally. What I'm saying with my lips, it's easy to say the words, "I forgive you." It's hard to believe them. And in Matthew 1835, um, the sinner, uh, the, the, the parable about the man who owed 10,000 talents, and massive debt, you've got to forgive from your heart. And that's Jesus' point at the end of that. When should we forgive? We should forgive when there's repentance. We forgive when we know God requires it, which is when there's a repentance we forgive every time there is repentance and when there is not repentance we forgive from the heart i know we are oh, we're like right at and a hair over already uh, let me just give this to you in, in luke chapter 11 uh, excuse me mark chapter 11 verse 25 thinking about corporate worship uh, this parallels what jesus says in matthew chapter 5 in matthew chapter 5 he says if you are go- at worship and you're presenting your sacrifice and you remember that someone has something against you leave your sacrifice and go right this is a this is another version of that in mark 11 verse 25 he says whenever you stand praying in other words when you're in corporate worship and you're praying in corporate worship he then says this forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father who is in heaven will also forgive your your transgressions so you're in worship and you remember that someone has sinned against you and you have a right to have something against them they've cost you he says in that moment you forgive them now there's no transaction they've not repented They've not asked for forgiveness. They've not asked for cleansing. They've not asked for absolution. They've not asked, they've not said, this is the plan for what repentance is going to look like. Jesus says, you forgive them. You've not said anything to them. You don't have a ability to say anything because they're not around you. This is you and the Lord. So he only can be talking here about something internal. In other words, they haven't asked for it, but just because they haven't asked for it doesn't mean you get to hold on to it. You've got to let it go. And what do you do with it then? Well, here's where I go. Romans chapter 12. If, so, if possible, so far as it depends on you, verse 18, be at peace with all men. So always be pursuing reconciliation with all men. Verse 19, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. How can you forgive? Because you recognize that your wrath is never enough to cost the sinner what he owes. Only God's wrath is sufficient for the weight of the sinner's sin. So you trust God that He'll take care of the sinner. Is that hard? (laughs) Yeah. Cards on the table. I've had a really difficult relationship. I'm still in the middle of it, honestly, where the sinner is unrepentant and I want my pound of flesh and it's killing me. I've got to let it go. And trust that no matter what I would do to the sinner, it pales to what God will do to him if he doesn't repent. But what if he does repent? Then Christ has paid it. And Christ has removed the guilt. And all is well. Either way, justice is served. Either in hell for eternity or on the cross of Christ. And I can rest in that. And so when I remember the sin, internally I can say, I let it go. I forgive you. I'm not transacting it, but I'm also not being consumed by the bitterness that comes from a lack of forgiveness. Um, why is forgiveness important? Let me just run through these. I'll give them to you. There. Whoops. Oh, rats. <laughs> Can you get me back, Rob? I don't know how to do that from here. Forgiveness is important. It keeps us from cultivating anger. That's your first blank. It keeps us from self-pity. It keeps us from depression and further sin. Keeps us from great, thank you. Uh, Keeps us from grief and some physical illnesses, keeps us from eternal torment, and keeps us in fellowship with God and with Him hearing our prayers. Okay, thanks, guys. I've gone over. I appreciate your listening.